Welcome to the Pathways to Stillness podcast series. I'm Dr. Gary Irwin Kenyon. I created this series as a follow-up to my book, Pathways to Stillness, Reflect, Release, Renew, which is available on Amazon, Indigo, and Friesen Press, and in audiobook form from Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. In this series of episodes, I am in conversation with my friend and colleague, Bill Randall. We explore pathways, or what Thomas Moore calls in another episode of this podcast, meanderings of our personal and collaborative journey with the metaphor of life as a story and the wonderful adventure that is possible if you are open to following your bliss. In this third episode, we explore pieces of wisdom that come from our books and that you might find useful in your personal and professional life. Hi, Bill. Hi, Gary. In our last episode, we talked about our uh, the origins or beginnings of our passion for the life is story metaphor and just how far back that goes in our pers- respective uh, lifetime, our life story. And we got up talking about different phases of that and uh, uh, ended the episode talking about the two books that we've written together. We've written many other things together, but focusing on these two books, restoring our lives and ordinary wisdom. But this adventure with uh, the life is story metaphor has uh, some other phases, some other experiences. And maybe what we can talk a little bit about to start today is uh, our experience, both teaching in the gerontology department at St. Thomas University, and talking a little bit about some of the students and courses that have extended that the privilege, I would say the privilege of an opportunity to share these insights with students. Probably mentioned at the beginning that although we're gerontology, often people think that's about just uh, older people, but um, gerontology and in particular narrative gerontology is really about all of us. Uh, The themes that we talk about, the experiences we talk about are about all of us, regardless of age. And so although a lot of the students we teach are in their 20s, the content, the material, the insights are very relevant, as they say themselves, to their own lives, as well as to those they may be with in the future. So I'd like to mention a couple of courses that I have a particular, I just love to teach. And one is called Aging and Tai Chi. Tai Chi is another one of my passions. And some years ago, I created a course called Aging and Tai Chi, which is a little different from uh, most academic courses in that the students uh, not only learn about Tai Chi research, and there's a lot of research now on Tai Chi about health benefits, mental, physical, and spiritual, and also how to apply Tai Chi to different groups of people. So the students love that course for another reason, and that is that we they get to practice a little Tai Chi, and they always come to that course and say, oh my God, I look forward to this class more than anything else in the week because it gives me a chance to relax and breathe <laughs> instead of just uh, going through academic material. Of course, not that that's bad, but it does give a kind of a contrast. And I like to think of that course as teaching students to explore the stillness in their story 
by uh, relaxing into stillness. Uh, I talk I talk more about this in my book, Pathways to Stillness. The opportunity to relax into stillness and then learn what Tai Chi is and its history and how it applies in research and practice. So that's a particular course for me that, uh, as I say, I really love to teach and, and share with the students. In all my courses, students also write reflection papers. So at the end of the course, they're sharing with me under confidentiality some very personal experiences in their own lives on the topic. And that's, again, with the teaching of the course, such an honor and privilege that they feel comfortable to share these things with me. And it makes the teaching really rich, a really rich experience for me, for them, as they say, but also for me learning. The other course I'll just mention is a death and dying course, which I've taught since I first began at St. Thomas over 30 years ago. And in that course, um, we um, talk about a wide range of topics concerning the end of life, the meaning of the end of life. So we talk about Buddhism and Christianity and other views. We also, I mentioned in the previous episode, my passion for the metaphor of journey. And in that course, we, uh, we talk quite a bit about the journey of life as the uh, uh, thanatologist or person who studies death and dying, Robert Kastenbaum used to say, uh, the study of death and dying is about life with death left in. So we don't try to deny death or avoid it. We, we treat it as part of life. And that's what I do in the course. So the journey includes what is death? What's the meaning of death? And what, how many different ways we can look at it and, and uh, understand it? And, the, and these folks also, the students also write a reflection paper, which are usually very powerful personal experiences which they say they've never shared with anybody because uh, we, we're still a death-denying society in many ways, and their parents and their families don't want to talk about that topic. And they feel really thankful that I offer them that opportunity. The one other thing about that course I'd like to mention is um, that I have adapted a theory of dying and a theory of grieving um, which I call the narrative theory of dying and the narrative theory of grieving. And some of it is adapted from the standard Kubler-Ross stages of death and dying, but I don't treat them as stages. I treat them as themes in a person's life story. So you have denial and anger and bargaining and those kinds of standard themes. And I treat them as themes so that you can story listen as we mentioned in the last episode, you listen for those themes and then you're able to perhaps help somebody where they are in their particular journey of dying or journey of grieving. So that's, again, a very rich experience for me and, and uses the kind of narrative, not the kind of, it, it is a narrative gerontology or a narrative care way of looking at death and dying. So those are a couple of... Uh, courses and experiences that I have. And what, what about yourself, Bill? Can you say something about courses that you teach? Well, I was just going to say, Gary, you also have taught regularly a course called Aging and Spirituality. Did you want to say a little bit about that and how narrative ideas uh, play a part in the way you teach that course? Well, again, we go over um, a range of perspectives on spirituality and aging. And again, it's not really about 
older adults themselves. It's about all of us experiencing a, a spiritual life. And, um, and again, the students uh, write a reflection paper at the end of that course as well, trying to tie together ideas and then expressing their own views on spirituality. And uh, it's a, wi a wide open approach in the sense that students can uh, say, well, I don't really have a spiritual perspective. And some of them will provide scholarly <laughs> uh, arguments about why they're atheists or why they don't think spirituality is important. And that's important too, to doubt in the area of spirituality, I think in your life story, it's very healthy to doubt. Like the Dalai Lama says too, you know, you shouldn't believe anything I write or I say unless it makes sense to you. It's perfectly healthy for you to just doubt it or not believe me and put my book away. Uh, and I think that's part of our human journey as well, not to just blindly follow a particular perspective. Yeah, so it's interesting to me, Gary, the way the courses that you've outlined have a personal and therefore also a narrative dimension in that you do tend to invite students to reflect upon their own lives, which is not something that they always necessarily get to do in other university-type courses. And I certainly, you know, echo uh, you on that regard because um, I find that learning journals, whatever the course is that I'm teaching, do tend to provide them with a chance to kind of relate the material to their own lives and to their own development. It's also interesting to me to hear you talk that many of the courses that we've had the privilege to teach at St. Thomas University have helped us to develop and continue expanding our own ideas about spirituality or about narrative that we've been able to, to write about. So the teaching and the writing have a back and forth kind of relationship, I find. But I've had the privilege since coming to St. Thomas in 1995 at your invitation to teach a course every year called Narrative Gerontology. And of course, the way I teach the course and the content that I cover in the course will vary from year to year as my own understanding of a narrative approach to aging and life uh, continues to grow. But one of the things I find with that course, Narrative Gerontology, is that, and you touched on this already, that inviting students to play with the relevance of that metaphor of, of life as story to their own lives as 20-year-olds or whatever, has a liberating impact often for them personally. They begin to realize, well, okay, my life is a story that I'm in the middle of as author, narrator, protagonist, reader, etc., kind of all at once. And I get to decide on some level what kind of story it's going to be and how it's going to unfold. And also, you know, can start to see the things I'm going through in my life as just a particular chapter or a particular page. It will not be is not necessarily the whole story. So it gives them kind of an affectionate detachment from the stuff, the heavy duty stuff often that they themselves are going through as 20, 18, 19, 20 uh, year old uh, students in university. I've also taught a course quite often uh, over the last uh, number of years called Counseling Older Adults. I picked that up from somebody else who used to teach it. And you can bet your bottom dollar that I incorporate a narrative dimension into that because we talk about the importance of listening, which is story listening, as kind of the core of what counseling, however we define that, uh, really is. And we look at the role of reminiscence and life review as an important part of the aging process and how if an older adult uh, doesn't have opportunities to do that, that could 
give rise to some emotional or other difficulties. So the importance of helping people to, to listen to people so that they can be helped to do that life review reminiscence work that uh, we believe, I think, uh, Later Life uh, uh, invites us to do. I have taught a course very regularly called Adult Development and Aging, which is a survey of, of theories of the psychology of aging, but you, you, you can be sure I always incorporate a narrative component, and I expose the students at least in one module to core concepts like biographical aging and narrative development and narrative identity. So they get a taste of that in that, which what tends to be a sort of an entry-level gerontology course. In recent years, I've had the privilege to teach the ad, um, advanced seminar in gerontology for our graduating students. And the theme I've chosen for a number of those years has been humor, play, and creativity. Again, the narrative dimension comes in there uh, when we talk about having an ironic detachment on the things that we're going through uh, in our lives as we age, because uh, irony and humor are closely linked. Uh, and we talk about creativity and self-creation and how the, the aging process itself can be something that we engage in in a creative, conscious way, not just go into aging with a resigned sort of sense of fatalism. Again, learning journals play part uh, for me in a course like that, as well as the counseling course and the narrative course for sure. This past year, I taught the narrative course in an online way, and that was challenging to do, but uh, the students rallied as best they could, and we had a pretty good experience nonetheless, and I got to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with each of the students where I found out more about their story, and I think that's important for you and I and others as teachers, is to have some sense of the stories of our students themselves, because they don't learn a particular topic in some sort of intellectual vacuum. They learn, you know, a topic, or they learn concepts or themes through the the lens of their own unique stories, inevitably. So that's a bit of an overview of teaching and how my teaching and my work in narrative and our work in narrative overlaps and feeds one another. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, the students, in my reflection papers, there's one that, another course I didn't mention is our fourth year seminar. You teach one and I teach another one. And they also write a reflection paper about their views of aging when they first entered the program. And then after four years of taking courses in gerontology, have they changed? Have they not? What's happened? And many, many of those students will say that the course that they were most influenced by is your narrative gerontology course. They say that very, very often that that was life-changing for them because, as you're suggesting, it's academic material, but it's also an opportunity, an invitation to look at themselves from a storied point of view and perhaps share that with other students too. I think we'd agree we've had a pretty rich experience with our students as well through this, through our own passion with uh, the life of story metaphor. Another area that this work, or sometimes I don't even think of it as work because when you're engaged in your passion, it's sort of effortless. You feel like you're where you need to be and all is well with the world and uh, it's, it's a bit of a timelessness to that experience. So that's what it's been a, a lot of times for me, like riding a wave that's been very pleasant, mostly very hard work, preparing and so on and, and working with students, but still very, very rewarding and meaningful. And another exciting area that we've had the opportunity to be involved in is conferences and workshops. We would tire out the listener if we listed all the things that we've done over the years. But again, maybe as with the courses, if we pick a couple of uh, interesting or pivotal conferences, 
and just talk a little bit about that. So for me, I've had the great pleasure to be at conferences that were quite small. And I'll just give you one example. One of the main conferences years ago that I was at was in the Black Forest in Germany at my friend Willie Motter's chalet. And there were five, I think there were five of us there, James Beeren and uh, Torbjorn Svensson from Sweden, Hans Schrutz from the Netherlands, a very international group. And what we did basically is we had a certain number of hours a day where we would work. So we would sit around a table in this wonderful, incredible setting, and we were basically starting to write a book. So we would talk about the drafts of our chapters, what we were thinking of putting into the book. I think the book we were working on there is called Aging and Biography, which is still available. And uh, then we would go for a walk in the Black Forest and break up into little groups of two or three and continue the conversation, go for some wonderful food somewhere, come back and maybe in the evening just have a a free-floating conversation again about our ideas or just about life in general. So it was a very, very rewarding, again, and meaningful, joyful sort of way to do work. So that's one of the very pivotal conferences that I'm thankful to be part of. And the other one um, that I, I just want to mention is a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Taiwan. And I spent 10 days there and gave workshops at two different universities. And that was also, I'd been to Hong Kong before, but never really spent any time in Asia. And that was a wonderful experience for several reasons. First of all, they treated me like a rock star. I I felt like I was being totally spoiled. They couldn't do enough for me. In fact, I had to politely, probably broke a rule or something there, but I politely called my host aside and I said, look, it's okay. (laughs) That's just, you know, you don't need to to fill every moment of my day. You know, I can be left alone. You guys can take a break from being a host because I know it's it's uh, it's a lot of work to to help help to be a host for a guest. And fortunately, my host uh, had studied in Texas, in the states. He, both he and his wife who were hosting me. So they, oh yeah, they said, okay, we can do that. So that took the pressure off everybody, but. Nevertheless, they still spoiled me and showed me all the wonderful sites, national parks and traditional restaurants and history, different cultural experiences, as well as doing the work. And Taiwan is a fascinating country, by the way, if you ever experience an an interesting and very developed uh, country. So that was a wonderful part of it. And then the um, workshop I gave, one of them was supposed to be three hours long. And we were going into over four hours. And uh, so I had to politely again say, <laughs> okay, I'm tired now. We need, to, we need to take a break here. And one of the folks came up to me during the break and he said, you know, this is so wonderful for me. He said, we're all passionate about narrative over here. He said, but it's a double pleasure for me because he said, what I do is I collect oral histories from older adults. And I don't have any time limit. I have to, I, I listen to them until they're finished talking. And he said, sometimes it will be hours. So he said, I'm, this helps me with my passion for narrative, more, more um, tools for my toolbox of listening to stories. But he said, also, I'm a Tai Chi teacher. 
Tai Chi student and teacher. So he said, I use Tai Chi to help me relax, to better listen to the stories, to story listen for a longer period of time. So he said, I want to thank you because you're talking about some of the Tai Chi and stillness in the story, as well as the narrative. So it's perfect that you come here. So this again was a very, I had no idea what I was going to experience, but it was just a wonderful, wonderful adventure and experience. So those are my choices of uh, a couple of conferences. How about yourself, Bill? Well, yeah, I just wanted to say that that conference in the Black Forest, you know, when you look back, in many respects, I was groundbreaking because you were, you were profiling together as a group this concept of biographical aging. And uh, the, uh, that opened up the floodgates in many respects for people like Jan Eric Ruth and others to say, well, we need a narrative gerontology to, to help us think through what biographical aging or autobiographical aging is. So kudos to you folks for having that gathering. I'm thinking of another smaller gathering that you and I have enjoyed with Ernst Bollmeier uh, in the Netherlands. And you've had, and I've had as well, great connections with uh, our colleagues and scholars in the the field of the psychology of aging and narrative gerontology in the Netherlands. But I recall quite uh, pleasantly that a time when you and I and Ernst were at this, in this little village not far from the, uh, the dunes along the North Sea. And uh, we were working together on reviewing the various chapters that we'd received for the book Storying Later Life, which came out in 2011. And you and I and Ernst are uh, co-editors of that. But I remember the great conversations that the three of us had over lunch and as we were reading and commenting on the different contributions that people had sent in to that book. And then we treated ourselves to a walk through the dunes, which we jokingly referred to as uh, hiking through the Dutch Alps. <laughs> right. I remember you, you came up with that term, and I think it's really, really <laughs> wonderful <laughs> term. <laughs> yeah. So that's an example of the sorts of things that you and I have been able to do. And we presented a, a lengthy pre-conference workshop at the Gerontological Society of America with Beth McKim in Boston on narrative gerontology, narrative care, and basic concepts. And again, there were folks there from Taiwan, if I don't, if I recall correctly. That may be partly how, how you know, you got the invitation to go to Taiwan. So these things are all kind of intertwined. But a couple of things that I remember that have been highlights for me in the last few years, particularly as my own thinking takes me more and more in the direction of aging, spirituality and narrative are a couple of lengthy presentations I was invited to do. One at a conference in University of Waterloo in Ontario, a conference devoted to aging and spirituality and attended by people in the uh, elder care, spiritual care field. So I got to kind of put together some of my thoughts on this broad topic of aging, spirituality and narrative and how those three kind of intertwine. And then in March of uh, 2019, the year before COVID kicked in, to go to Milwaukee. And you've had connections with both of those same organizers in Milwaukee and Waterloo. And that was a, a great opportunity for me to, to test out some ideas to a group of people who work in the front lines with older adults in some sort of spiritual care capacity, whether as chaplains or social workers or rabbis or imams or, or whatever. And that led to me writing up my, my PowerPoint slides as a book in our stories lies our strength. So it's always amazing to me how for both of us, the gigs that we've been able to take and the opportunities to speak seem to be all kind of intertwined or all kind of part of a, an unfolding fabric. And we just 
ride the wave. You know, it's work, hard work for sure, but it's been immensely fulfilling, uh, I think, for both of us personally, and to feel that we're contributing to uh, the articulation of a different, well, I think it was a different starting point for thinking about life and aging and so forth. A different paradigm, which is where some of the language that we've developed in our writings together, Gary, has emerged because a new perspective or a new paradigm for thinking about something as as uh, central as aging invites or requires maybe a new language, a new a new set of terminology. <laughs> sure, like many other scientific revolutions, <laughs> quantum physics, you know, protons, neutrons, photons, all of that language that came along with well Einstein and then further further into quantum physics. So, you're, you're, I, I agree with you. And any paradigm shift, there's uh, it expands ways of expressing through language some new new ideas, new insights. Because the, the word storying itself, which is the first word in the title of that book that you and Ernst and I put together, Storying Later Life, making a verb or a gerund out of a noun is a, is a step in that direction of rethinking stuff. And that's led to a number of other terms like restorying, which is the title of the book that we first wrote together. And I like to f use the phrase de-storying. Sometimes with older adults, uh, we run the risk of narratively dispossessing them of their stories. If, for example, they have some sort of cognitive impairment and can't talk about their lives in, in ways that make linear sense to us as story listeners. Uh, narrative dispossession is a term that our colleague Clyde Baldwin uh, sort of uh, threw in the mix. But then there's words like uh, regeneration, <laughs> coming up with a different genre for experiencing your own aging, from, from a tragedy perhaps to an adventure, stereotyping, storying style. I like to talk about each person has uh, their own unique story world as we get older and the process of life review becomes important for us to do. There's a story work that awaits us co-authoring you and I have written about that how, how we don't story our lives in a vacuum but typically in a web of relationships with significant others family members in within communities and so forth so narratively speaking no one is an island signature stories part of the collection of narrative material that each of us carries around in our autobiographical memory stories left untold which suggests the link to lives unlived <laughs> Larger stories that we live within, narrative environment, narrative development, narrative challenges such as narrative foreclosure, and then of course the concept that we like to use a lot these days, which is narrative care, which takes in a full spectrum of of interventions with uh, with people, older people in this case, ranging from therapy per se to just listening. Those are some of the terms that that I have had fun playing around with, and in the world of narrative psychology and other fields where narrative ideas have made inroads, these kinds of terms are popping up all over the place, which again is, uh, is underscores the different way of thinking that a narrative approach invites us to engage in about life, about aging, about health, etc. Yeah, those are very rich terms. As you, the story metaphor has had a long shelf life. People have told stories probably in one form or another as long as there have been human beings. But it's also got a long life, what we're doing in the world today. I've noticed from the last, say, 
10 years or 15 years that the term narrative appears everywhere. Uh, you turn on your internet or your TV and listen to the news, everything is narrative. So there's been a, a change, uh, a movement there in any case. And I also think the insights and ideas, and yes, the language that I suspect will find its way more and more, because this is, Jim Beeren said, this is only the beginning of the narrative perspective on aging. And I think that's true, that, uh, that this language will possibly become more useful and more used as time goes on. I'd just like to mention, I, th I like the, the list of terms that you have there. That's a good list that we are going to try to have somewhere on our um, podcast series for uh, the listener to find. And along with that, if we just, I'd just like to mention a few of the edited volumes that we have put together ourselves, besides the books we've written, you and I, together. You mentioned storying later life, and I mentioned aging and biography before, which is, uh, be came before storying later life. Another book called Narrative Gerontology. These are edited collections that have chapters from scholars around the world who either deal with a research issue, and that applies to narrative, or a practice issue. Uh, narrative care, for example, is talked about in one of these chapters. So how narrative approach applies to different areas of life, either again for researchers or practitioners in the field. And so they deal, this is not by any means an exhaustive topic. We encourage you to get the books to, to find out more detail. We're just sprinkling things with, with some of the important topics in our podcast. But some of these edited volumes include chapters on dementia, widowhood, terminal illness or end-of-life issues, some of the cultural issues, narrative foreclosure, as you mentioned, depression, anxiety. So these are readily applicable from a narrative perspective. I'm going to go on to ask you to, to uh, talk a little bit more about narrative matters, about the conference series Narrative Matters. But before I do that, one of the uh, speakers you had in that series, which uh, whose name I forget now, was a British psychiatrist who uh, called himself a narrative psychiatrist. And I found that talk absolutely fascinating, how he talked about helping people, say, with schizophrenia and other kinds of psychiatric issues from a narrative perspective, using their story, and how he was able to use a broader range of approaches to help people that would normally be restricted to some pretty standard types of practices. Anyway, why don't you say a little bit more about that Narrative Matters series which you, which you founded and uh, created yourself? Well, not exactly myself, but uh, before I get into that, uh, the speaker whom you mentioned, Dr. Phil Thomas from the UK, a narrative psychiatrist, uh, he was an annual lecturer in narrative that we brought in through CIRN, C-I-R-N. And if I could, might want to say a little bit about that and then go to Narrative Matters, if I could, Gary. So in 2008, here at St. Thomas University, with the aid of funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, or SHRC, we were able to establish a Center for Interdisciplinary Research on Narrative uh, here at St. Thomas 
and that's been going now for 13 years. And every year we bring in a scholar, a researcher from from some different country, some different discipline besides just gerontology, because the concern is not just about narrative in gerontology, narrative in a whole range of disciplines. So Phil Thomas came over, but we've had other speakers such as Art Frank, well known for his writing about uh, the wounded storyteller and the use of stories in healthcare, etc. So that the, the CERN, not to be confused with that place in Switzerland where they bang atoms together, and you mentioned quantum physics earlier. So CERN and CERN, two different uh, acronyms, but our CERN, C-I-R-N, has been a great gathering place for people actually from around the world. We've had people reach out to us and want to come and hang out with us for a few days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, whether from Norway or the Netherlands or Turkey in one case, the U.S. for sure, the U.K., Germany. And that's been a great ride for us here at St. Thomas. You've been part of that CERN team, Gary, so thank you. And so that's kind of, that's the hub that we've had here at our small liberal arts university to explore narrative ideas and the interconnection of narrative concepts and approaches across disciplines, which has been really a wonderful and fruitful uh, endeavor. Narrative Matters, the conference that you mentioned, started, yes, here at St. Thomas, myself and my University of New Brunswick colleague, Dolores Furlong from the Faculty of Nursing, who who had met, we'd known each other at the University of Toronto, which is where we both first became involved in, in narrative in the field of teaching and learning in our graduate studies. But we decided back in 2001, realizing that we were both here now in Fredericton, although at two different universities, that we might want to try to have a conference where we could invite people from different disciplines who, like us, felt like we were working kind of the, at the edges of our respective disciplines, nursing for her, gerontology for me, and have a conference where people in other fields like psychology and social work who may, might feel marginalized within their own universities or whatever could come and have a great big conversation about narrative ideas. So we agreed on the title, Narrative Matters. We got funding from Shirk to hold a conference in 2002 with a team of uh, folks, students, and other colleagues in our two universities to plan this. And we brought in Mary Catherine Bateson, who is an educator, well-known, a daughter of uh, Margaret Mead and uh, Gregory Bateson. And we brought in David Cool, a palliative care physician, and they both were keynote speakers. So that was such a well-received conference, the 2002, that the outcry at the end of the conference on the last session, last day, was, let's have another one next year. <laughs> 2003, Dolores and I looked at each other as well, and I know it's a lot of work, maybe the following year. So 2004, we hosted a second conference called Narrative Matters, and we had more people come uh, from further afield. And uh, there was a momentum that, that, uh, that those conferences started to build. In 2006, Narrative Matters took place at Acadia University in Wolfville. 2008, the University of Toronto in Toronto. 2010, we had it back here in Fredericton with uh, Ken and Mary Gergen of the Taoist Institute as our speakers, along with well-known narrative psychologist Ruth Ellen Josselson, Jean Clandinen from University of Alberta. And the number of delegates who showed up was, again, increased. 2012, uh, at the invitation of Dr. Brian Schiff, our colleague and friend at the American University of Paris, Narrative Matters went abroad. And uh, so for 2012 and 2014, the conferences were held in Paris, France. 2016, back to Victoria, BC. 2018, in the University of Twente in the Netherlands. 
In 2020, it was scheduled to have to taken place at Mercer University in Atlanta with Dan McAdams and Art Frank as keynote speakers and others, including Isabel Wilkerson, the African-American author of a couple of very important best-selling books. Anyway, COVID came along, so we had to postpone until 2022. Then in 2023, we've already had folks volunteering in Finland to carry that conference on. So that's been pretty exciting, and it's been it's, it's, it's certainly enriched, I think, my own work and our work as narrative gerontologists, but the point of the conferences has been to invite people from a variety of disciplines, literary theory, history, philosophy, social work, uh, from the theoretical to the applied, gerontology, psychology, etc. And the network of friendships and the collaborations that these conferences have helped to foster has been, you know, nothing sort of very exciting for us here at St. Thomas, and I'm happy to have played a key role in starting the ball rolling. I hope that helps a little bit. Absolutely fascinating and wonderful uh, series of conferences, and I've been to a number of them. It's it's really a wonderful experience walking the halls of wherever the conference is being held, and uh, there are folks from all different disciplines, as you say, writers and drama people and perhaps spiritual thinkers and gerontologists and a wide, wide range, psychologists, wide, wide range. And they they will come up to me too and start, kind of start talking to each other. And they say, what a wonderful conference. I I don't really have a conference to go to that that I can find friends who are speaking my language, which is narrative in whatever particular discipline they're they're specialized in. That's a really, really rich experience. Just to tag on, we were talking about conferences, and you and I did a, you made me think of this, that 2018 in Enschede, in the Netherlands, we did a pre-conference workshop on narrative and story and narrative care, narrative gerontology. You know, you're never sure how many participants you will have. And I remember we filled the room with 25 or more participants, and they were from 10 different countries around the world. Was, and they were all so enthusiastic and so curious about what we were doing. Uh, anyway, that was another very rich conference to be part of. Yes, I recall there was quite a few in that particular group from Israel, and uh, where narrative ideas have uh, taken root uh, and spread through across a number of different distances. I wanted to mention too, Gary, that at the, the 2012-2014 conferences in Paris, there was another edited collection that came out called Life and Narrative, The Risks and Responsibilities of Storying Experience. And that was edited by our friend Brian Schiff, our colleague Beth Bakim, and uh, Sylvie Patron from the University of Paris. So that's another example, again, outside of gerontology per se, of how people get together and say, well, my ideas can help you with your ideas, and let's collaborate, and let's put a book together, etc., so CERN, our, our Interdisciplinary Research Center on Narrative, a part of our mandate with the funding we got from Shirk was to found an interdisciplinary journal, which we were able to do, and we gave it the title Narrative Works, Issues, Investigations, and Interventions, which brings together the theory, research, and practice thing. And that's been running since 2011 when we had our first issue. So that's a 10-year journey that we've had with that. Again, Beth McKim has been carrying much of the load in terms of the uh, production of each issue. But again, it's brought in scholarship and research and writers from a variety of different disciplines, and we're hoping to hand over the editorship of that 
to our colleagues uh, at another university in the U.S. in the coming months. But uh, that's been a wonderful outgrowth of CERN and also an outgrowth of the Narrative Matters conferences. It's an online, open-access, peer-reviewed journal. And just you could go on the website under Narrative Works and you'd find information about that. Yeah, and these edited books that we've uh, mentioned, as well as our own books, are available on um, Amazon or from publishers like Oxford University Press. But they are available on Amazon as one central place to go to. And maybe we'll try to provide some links that can be um, added to our podcast series at some point to direct the listener. Thank you for listening to the Pathways to Stillness podcast series. My book, Pathways to Stillness, Reflect, Release, Renew, is available on Amazon, Indigo Chapters, and Friesen Press. It is also available in audiobook form from Audible, Amazon, and iTunes.